So we're in the midst of a series in which we're taking a tour of the tabernacle, which you, you primarily find all the instructions and details, architectural plans for that in Exodus 25 to 40. But it is a staple piece of furniture throughout the whole Old Testament. And it's alluded to many times in the New Testament as well. And so far we've looked at the altar of sacrifice where God visually symbolizes to his people that he takes away all the guilt of their sin. And then we looked at the basin for washing where God visually symbolizes to his people that he cleanses them from all unrighteousness. Now today, if you're hungry, it's a good day because we're going to talk about food. Today is the table of the bread of presence. And ironically, I didn't plan this, but we're talking about bread and we're taking bread and I'm sure there's bread uh, out there as well in the fellowship hall. So this is a good day. All right, let's read God's word. I'm going to start in Exodus 25, read verses 23 to 30, and then I'll jump over to Leviticus 24. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. Exodus 25, starting in verse 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Then reading in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 9. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons as they eat it in the holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Well, this far the reading of God's word, let's pray and ask his blessing on the preaching and hearing of it. Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word. We're reminded that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of you, our Father. So Lord, we are spiritually famished and in need of food, and yet you are the one who generously and lavishly feeds us. So feed us this morning on the truth of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been truly hungry before? Truly hungry. I'm not talking about voluntary hunger, because you're fasting or dieting, or even self-inflicted hunger because you forgot to eat or you don't know how to cook, which is one of my problems. I'm talking about the involuntary, non-self-inflicted hunger because food is either unavailable or unaffordable. I'm guessing for most of us here, you have lived your whole entire life knowing what it's like to have your daily need of bread met without interruption. Well, this has not always been the case for different societies or people throughout history. There's one story about the Great Plague in England. So during those days of that great sickness, many parents died, often leaving many children orphaned. So these orphaned children would go days without eating and knew all too well what it was like to go hungry. Well, as the story goes, a Christian orphanage took many of these hungry children in. 
And at night, the children would have a difficult time falling asleep. The reason for this is because they were filled with anxiety over hunger. The thought of maybe tomorrow not getting enough food again was enough to keep them awake at night. So the workers of the orphanage, here's what they came up with to help the kids sleep. They would give them a piece of bread at night to hold on to so that they would know that tomorrow's daily bread was going to be provided for them so they could rest easy and comfortably. Well, for the nation of Israel, the concern over food and hunger was not one linked to a sickness or a plague. It was linked to the location that they found themselves in. They were in the wilderness. God had brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness, and a wilderness is a place marked by lack and scarcity. If you're hungry, it's not the place you want to go. Well, when initially confronted by this scarcity and lack, this hunger, here's how Israel responds in Exodus 13 or Exodus 16. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots, we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. So if we're to give this verse a modern paraphrase, the Israelites became very hangry with God. That's what's, that's what's going on in this verse. Yet how does the Lord respond? The Lord responds to their grumbling with grace. He rains down bread from heaven so much so that every single Israelite has enough bread every single day. On the sixth day, there was a double portion so they didn't have to collect any on the Sabbath. So contrary to their original hypothesis, God had not brought them in the wilderness to kill them with hunger, but in their hunger to make them learn what it means to say, all I have needed, thy hand hath provided. That's what the Lord was doing. And then to memorialize this provision, this constant provision of God in the wilderness, he has them make the table of the bread of presence, which symbolized to them, God provides all that we need. All we have needed, thy hand hath provided. And so the main message communicated through the table of this bread of presence is this. The Lord himself prepares a table for us. And in fellowship with him, the Lord provides for our needs and he satisfies our hunger. At the Lord's table, he provides for all our needs and he satisfies all of our hunger. Well, let's consider some of the details first in God's architectural blueprints for this particular item. So what we first get when we encounter this table is not a description of its purpose, but a description of what it looks like. And remember, originally, when Moses is told that he's about to get these instructions, he's given his job description for how he's to oversee this construction project. Moses is told in Exodus 25, verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So who's the original architecture and design of all this? It's God. Moses is the construction foreman. His single sole job is to make sure that God's detailed design is implemented through the nation of Israel. Well, this particular item, this table of the bread of presence, was to be placed inside the holy place on the north side of that section of the tabernacle. So we've looked at two items already, and those previous two items were in the outer court. This is the first of three items that we're going to see that is inside the holy place. So in order to access this table, you have to first enter in the east gate heading in a westward direction. So if you look at your bulletin, you see that description and detail of the tabernacle there. 
Notice that the compass is kind of flipped upside down because I had to make it fit on the page. You come from the east heading to the west. That's always and the only direction that you can head in to encounter these items. Why is that? Well, many people pointed out that the way one would enter the tabernacle is the exact opposite direction that Adam and Eve were sent away from God's presence in the Garden of Eden. So in the Garden of Eden, they eat a meal in rebellion and they're sent away. They're sent from the west to the east. So in, in Genesis, whenever you see someone going east, it's never a good thing. Go west. That's always the direction to go. Unless you're looking for the ocean, then you go east or wherever the ocean is. So Adam and Eve are sent away because of their sin, and yet the Israelites are called in by God's grace into his presence by going in the reverse direction. So God is reversing the effects of sin and the curse by restoring fellowship with his people. Well, as you're heading in that westward direction, you first pass the altar of sacrifice, then you pass the basin for washing, and then you come to the first of two separating veils. So you have the outer veil separating the outer place from the holy place, but then inside you have the inner veil separating the holy place from the most holy place. And you come to this veil and it's made of blue and purple and scarlet cloth. It's hung on five gold pillars. And each veil separating one section from another signals an increasing restriction of access. So in the outer court, all the Israelites could come, provided that they had a sacrifice with them and were ceremonially clean. But through that first outer veil, only the priests of Levi, only the Aaronic priesthood could go in there, and then it gets further restricting the further you go in. So once they come through this veil, just to their right, they would see the table and the bread. Now to call it a table doesn't give us a very accurate picture of its size. So it was three feet long, one and a half feet wide, and just over two feet off the ground. So if you're in home goods or Target, you're shopping, you come across this item, you're not calling it a table. This is a coffee table at best, or maybe a good size end table at most. It was very small. This is not something you can sit the family around for a good meal. This would be very uncomfortable to do that with. But what it lacks in stature, it makes up for in material. Look at Exodus 25, 23. It tells us that it's made out of acacia wood like the other items, but look at verse 24 of Exodus 25. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. So this item and everything associated with it is overlaid with pure gold. So the objects you just passed had you walked in from the outer court would have been overlaid with bronze. Now you come into the holy place Everything is overlaid with pure gold. So you're getting closer to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. There's increasing restriction of access, but also there's increasing value in all the materials that you're passing as you come in to this place. Think about it. If someone offered you five pounds of bronze and five pounds of gold, what are you taking? You better take the gold, especially in this economy, okay? You need the gold. Gold is a far more precious material, not just because it's more rare, but because it is objectively more beautiful than bronze. It has this luminous radiating glow to it that would have likely filled this section with light. I mean, there, there's one candle in there. It's not much light and it's covered, but yet you have gold that's radiating and illuminating light in this place. Well, while the table was extremely valuable and beautiful, it was just a table. That's all it is. It's a gold table, it's an expensive table, but it's just a table. It was merely there so you could set something on it. In other words, 
The gold table is just a supporting actor in this scene. The main star of this show is found in Exodus 25, verse 30. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly, perpetually, continually. There's bread on this table. Now you think, if the table is just a table, but it's got gold, there must be something special about this bread. There's not. There's, there's nothing special. It's, it's regular, unleavened bread that they would have made in their homes. So this is not like, you know, there's, there's bread, and then there's King's Hawaiian sweet bread. This is not like that. There, this is just bread, just regular, ordinary bread. But what you see in the tabernacle is you have common, everyday items, and yet they're called holy and sacred because they're brought near to the presence of God. The nearer something is brought to the presence of God, the more holy it is because of God's presence, not because anything inherent in it. So it wasn't like someone just had a great recipe. You know, this is like the Chick-fil-A chicken, and they said, let's bring this in to the tabernacle. No, this is special bread because it is near the presence of God and that alone. But notice that it's arranged in a certain way with a certain amount. So Leviticus 24, verse 5 and 6 shows us how it would have been laid out on the table. And you can see that in the uh, image I put on your bulletin. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold. So you have two piles of six pieces of bread stacked on top. So you have 12 total. And I don't think it requires any biblical gymnastics to to say that this represented the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. So just as God had fed the whole nation, all his people in the wilderness, this is a memorial of that, that God always provides the daily bread for all his people. There's a perpetual reminder of that. And remember, they're in the wilderness. This is a place when you're thinking about the lack of food. And yet God has a perpetual display saying, I provide for all your daily needs. Well, Exodus 25, 29 also notes that there were some other items that sat on this table. I know I'm making you flip back and forth, but... You can just listen if you're getting tired. Exodus 25:29, And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. So with this table, with this bread, you have plates, you have dishes, and then you have this thing which is just a pitcher that holds water or perhaps wine. So what do you see here? I think it's pretty clear. You see a table that is set for a meal. This is not just a table with bread. This is a table with a whole meal set with dishes and drink and everything. So if you were to come into the, to this section of the tabernacle, you would see this table that was set with the two daily staples of sustenance, bread and drink, constantly, perpetually. Bread and drink is set there before you. Now the question is, why? What was the original purpose and function of this table that was set with a perpetual, continual meal? Well, to answer that question, we need to look at Leviticus 24, verse 8 and 9. So Exodus 25 gives us the details, the design. Leviticus 24 gives us the purpose and the use. What, what happened with this table and this food? Leviticus 24, 8 and 9. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. So he comes and he kind of sets the table. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, since it is for them a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offering, a perpetual due, a perpetual reminder. So once a week, the priests come in, and this time 
on the Sabbath, they don't just get to look at the table. They get to sit down, as it were, and they get to eat this meal that's been set up. They don't just get to smell the bread today. They get to eat the bread. They don't just get to look at the drink that's been set out. They get to drink it. And so this bread was an edible emblem, communicating to the people, taste and see that the Lord is good. Every Sabbath, they get to not just look at this emblem, it becomes an edible emblem. They get to taste and see that the Lord is good. Think of it like the original edible arrangement. And if you've ever bought an edible arrangement for someone or ever got one, but when you get an edible arrangement for someone, you say two things at once. You say, I'm thinking about you, and I'm thinking about your stomach and taste buds as well. Or in my case, you say, I'm sorry, and forget about that mean thing I said as you eat this delicious chocolate-covered strawberry. So this edible emblem here in the tabernacle is doubly communicating. As an emblem, it communicates the Lord provides. Look and see what the Lord has done, how he provided for you in the wilderness. But as edible emblem, it communicates the Lord satisfies your hunger. The Lord feeds you with good things, rich feast for your soul. And as he provides a satisfying meal, he provides it in the most unlikely of places. He provides it in the wilderness. So, so God demonstrates his hospitality to his people in the most unhospitable place in the world. He sets a table in the wilderness for his people. Well, having considered the original design and function of the table, let's now consider its theological symbolism. So look at the design, its use. Now, what was it meant to theologically communicate? And by, by that, what lessons about God about Christ, about the Christian life, about sin, does it communicate to us? Now, you may be wondering, is it right for you to draw out theological symbolism from the tabernacle, right? It's Old Testament thing, we're New Covenant Christians. Well, let me tell you, I not only believe we should, but we must draw out the theological symbolism because the author of Hebrews demands it. In Hebrews 8.5, the author of Hebrews says, the priests served in the tabernacle which was a copy and shadow of heavenly things. It wasn't like God decided that he really wanted to do wilderness tent camping and he wanted to build an expensive wilderness tent camp and then later his son comes and he says, you know what, there's some things in there that I could really use as object lessons. Kind of, you know, the original flannel graph of Sunday school for his people. But no, God had in mind his plan of redemption already founded before the foundation of the world and he said, you know what, I'm going to build a tabernacle so that later on they have something already in their experience, in their history, in their minds that I can use to display what my son has come to do. So you, you see, especially without the Gospel of John, it opens with it saying about Jesus, he tabernacled among us, he came and dwelt among us, meaning something better than the tabernacle is here and you should see him in light of it and it in light of him. So what are some of the visual, spiritual truths demonstrated in this tabernacle? Well, as it comes to the table of the bread of presence, it symbolized that God delights to have fellowship with his people. That God delights to pursue and sit at a table with his people. Bread is not just a symbol of daily provision. It is a sign of personal communion and fellowship. So to break bread with someone is to relationally identify with them, to extend friendship with them. Think of the difference between visiting with your neighbor at the end of your driveway and inviting your neighbor to sit at your table over a home-cooked meal in your dining room. 
there's a big difference. At the end of your driveway, if it gets awkward, if politics come up, you can just say, I gotta go, and you walk inside, and it's over. If they're sitting with you at your dining room table, you gotta put up with the awkwardness. You have to engage in a relational level of depth that, let's be honest, makes us uncomfortable, probably why we don't do that very often. We're fine being acquaintances with people. We're fine liking them on social media or stalking them on social media, but real friendships, real friendships, they're they're messy. They make you late for dinner, right? But God, on the other hand, does not desire acquaintanceship. He desires fellowship with his people, real, true, deep relationship with his people. And I feel like oftentimes our relationship with the Lord feels kind of like riding in the elevator with a stranger. So I don't know if you ever worked in a building or been to a building where you have to get in an elevator and you gotta share it with people you often don't know. My first job, I worked at an insurance company and I was on the 10th floor, so you always have to ride the elevator with people you don't know and you just stand there and you're, should I talk, should I not talk? You know, mighty weather we've been having lately. And it's very awkward. And that's how I often feel people relate to God most. It's like, you're riding an elevator with a stranger, should I talk to him? I don't really know them. I just can't wait to get off on my floor. God does not desire acquaintanceship. He desires fellowship with us. He sets a table in his house and invites us to break bread with him because he's a God who delights to have fellowship with his people. I think the bread and drink in this tabernacle is not set there for him. So in in pagan temples in ancient Near East and ancient mythology, when they had temples set up, the food that was set in there was the nectar of the gods. It was the people giving food to the gods because the gods of pagan mythology were empty and needed to be filled. But this food is set for the people. God sets the table for his people because he is a God who is full and overflowing. He is not like the false gods of this world. And then think of the gospel logic in the order of the furniture that God set up in the tabernacle. So before you got to this table, first, you passed the altar of sacrifice. God forgives all the guilt of your sin. The blood of atonement cleanses you. Then you come to the wash basin and you wash the unrighteousness off of you and you're cleansed. And now having been forgiven and cleansed, what do you get to do? You get to sit down at the table with the Lord who has set up a meal for you so that he who has pursued and gone after you can have fellowship with you. That's the gospel logic. And then herein lies another redemptive reversal. Adam and Eve were sent away from God's presence in the opposite direction that you would come to this table because they ate a meal with a serpent. Now, God is drawing his people back. Every Sabbath, Sabbath after Sabbath, he says, my redeemed people, sit down with your redeemer and enjoy a meal with me. Taste and see that I am good. So God pursues and delights to have fellowship with his people. Well, the table and the bread also symbolize that one of the effects of sin is that we are naturally grumblers and seekers after that which does not satisfy. There are two ways to spoil a good meal. And you've probably heard this or done this. Two ways to spoil a good meal. Either by grumbling that it's not the kind of food that you want to eat and you wish it were something different, or by spoiling a good meal because you snacked on junk food too much right up until mealtime. And so there's no room for the actual delicious meal. Well, spiritually speaking, I'm sure you're good at both methods of meal spoiling. Like Israel in the wilderness, the moment you feel a tinge of discomfort, the grumbling begins. The moment 
that you don't get what you want. You look back at Egypt and think, it wasn't so bad there. Maybe, maybe we should go back. At least we were full while we were being beaten and tortured. And if God provides bread, we grumble that it's not the right kind and there's not enough variety on the menu. If God should keep a record of all your grumblings, if he should weigh in the scales of justice, our thanksgiving and our grumbling, who could stand before his presence? And moreover, we would do well to listen to the question posed in Isaiah 55, 2. So what Isaiah says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? He's picturing people running around, buying up all this stuff that they think is bread, but it doesn't actually fill their stomachs. And they're working and toiling and striving after things that in the end leave them just as empty as when they started. So if your desire for the Lord, if your craving for Christian fellowship, your hunger for God's word, your longing after holiness, feels like you're on appetite suppressants, perhaps it's because you have spoiled a spiritual feast by snacking too much on the junk food of worldliness. Today is a good day for a spiritual menu change. Today is a good day for a spiritual diet. Not one where you go without food, but one when you feast richly on the best kind of food. Today is a good day to follow the example of the prodigal son who was brought to repentance by his hunger. Think of this. In the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, when does he come to his senses? I'll read it. But he came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, and yet I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And he thinks his father's not going to receive him back originally in the parable. And so he says, I'll just be one of your hired servants. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And yet how does the father receive him back? He runs after him. He throws his cloak on him, and he gives him a feast like one you should stay after for after worship, but probably not as good. Or perhaps you're in a place where you've searched and searched, you've tested and tasted money, pleasure, ambition, comfort, materialism, moralism, you name it, and you still feel like that Mick Jagger song, I can't get no satisfaction. That's you. Or the U2 song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Very good theological songs. Well, today is a good day to listen to my next point. Now, I think every day is a good day to listen to my next point. Just ask my wife. But today is an especially good day. The bread symbolizes, most importantly, that Jesus is the bread of life. And whoever comes to him shall not hunger. So think of Jesus. Comes this earthly ministry here. And early on in his ministry, there's a buzz about him. Surrounding him. It's it's fresh because this is a new guy on the scene. There's a fever pitch about his popularity. And so large crowds would follow him wherever he goes. They wanted to see every miracle. They want to watch every confrontation between him and the religious leaders. And they want to catch every word he's going to speak. Well, one particular day, it's late. The crowds are hungry. There's no Chick-fil-A around. Probably Sunday. They're closed. Bummer. So Jesus takes five measly little loaves of bread and he feeds over 5,000 people with it. And this is another case of like father, like son. Like father, in the wilderness, he feeds the nation of Israel, brought out from Egypt with no food. And now, like his father, Jesus feeds this large gathering of Israelites in the wilderness with 
miraculous multiplying bread. But most people in the crowd don't make the connection. They don't, they don't connect the dots. And so what do they see? They see free food and a great business opportunity. So they come back to Jesus the next day and Jesus calls them out on this. He says, truly I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, not because you saw the divine signs that I'm showing you, but because you ate your fill of bread. You went home satisfied and you came back because you wanted more. Here's what they missed. Jesus had not ultimately come to fill empty stomachs, but to save and satisfy sinful hearts. That's what he came for. The bread was a type and sign of what he had come to do for them spiritually. In other words, Jesus is not just the provider of daily bread. He is the bread of life. And whoever comes to him shall never hunger. That's what he was communicating to them. Think of earthly bread. Earthly bread can stave off hunger for a time, but you constantly need to come back. It's, it's this frustrating cycle of you're either eating, finishing eating, or thinking about what you're going to eat next. That's just, that's just life. You go on vacation, what do you do? Oh, where can we eat today? Where can we eat? Earthly bread can stave off hunger for a time, but Christ alone is a source of never ceasing, always increasing joy. That's Christ. Earthly bread can sustain our strength and life for a time, but it eventually will fail us. But Christ alone provides eternal life because he is the one who has defeated death, who has conquered the grave and gives us a share in his victory over death. Earthly bread can provide earthly fellowship. We've had great meals with good friends and good laughter and good conversation. And yet, it eventually fades and you have to go home and and normal life kicks in. But heavenly bread provides heavenly fellowship, which will never fade, never sour, never end. And Christ came to display that most fully when he would sit at a table and eat with sinners of all people. I mean, Jesus ate with the wrong crowd all the time so much that the religious leaders had a saying for him. They said this about Jesus. He's a glutton, he's a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What a title for you. What a reputation. He ate so much. He enjoyed so many feasts with such the wrong crowd that they thought, this this is an unclean man. And yet here is another case of them being somewhat right and mostly wrong. What they missed was that the one who had designed the table of bread that symbolized God's delight in fellowship, had taken on flesh and was dwelling amongst his people and doing the things that he had always been doing, pursuing sinners so that he might have fellowship with them them at his table. That's what Christ was doing. That's what they missed. But what everyone missed, including the disciples, was that Jesus was not just satisfying bread, he was sacrificial bread. For you and I, to be able to break bread with Jesus, he had to become the bread that was broken for us. For us to sit at the table with Jesus so that we could break bread with him, he had to become the bread that was broken for us. And so in the Bible, there are two take and eat scenes in the whole of scripture. The first is when Adam and Eve take and eat the forbidden fruit and so begin the rupture of humanity's relationship with God. It's why we grumble It's why we complain. It's why we seek after God's substitutes and spend our money on that which does not satisfy. But the second take and eat scene is when Jesus, on the eve of his crucifixion, with bread in his hand, breaks it, hands it to his disciples and says, take, eat. This is my body, which is given 
for you. What Jesus was saying is, by faith, by faith alone, you can break bread with me because I am, I am going to become broken bread for you. Well, finally, the bread of presence symbolizes our need to live on the daily and weekly nourishment of fellowship with God. So we have Christ, the, the bread that satisfies our hunger. But in a sense, yes, we, we eat once and we're satisfied, but we come continually over and over to this bread. So we need to live on the daily and weekly nourishment of fellowship with God. Ironically, given that we just passed the 4th of July, uh, growth in the Christian life happens not as we declare our independence from God, but as we declare our dependence on God. The whole of the Christian life is a declaration of dependence. The one declaration of independence in the Bible in Genesis 3 did not go well. I'm not making any political statement here about our form of government. I'm, I'm happy with it for now. But the Christian life is one in which it is not our own life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, but it is our pursuing of God, our dependence on God, our reliance on him continually by which we find our nourishment. The petition in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, is not just a prayer we pray. It is a posture we take day after day after day. Your life verse should be, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Your life hymn should be, I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. That is the Christian life. Now, complementing our daily personal need for fellowship with God is also the weekly corporate need for fellowship with God. The Christian life is not a lone ranger life. It is not one in which you live on your own, doing your own thing, just me, Jesus, and my Bible. It is one in which you lock arms with other believers and have fellowship with God together as the body of Christ. When you think of all the metaphors for the church in the New Testament, they're all corporate metaphors. Body, family, temple, all these bricks and stones being built together, they're all corporate because we need one another as well in this wilderness. And so the bread was eaten by the priests every Sabbath to signify, I think, in a special way that the Lord provides a unique corporate feast for his people every Lord's Day as we gather for worship. That's why the author of Hebrews says to the congregation he's addressing, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So one author has said this, the bread was eaten on the Sabbath because God makes special provision for his children on his own day that he has claimed uniquely for himself. The Sabbath is a special day of Christian nourishment at God's family table. He who can afford to ignore it will soon find out that he can't. He will miss the cheering of fellowship, the conviction and comfort of the word, the reviving effect of public prayer and praise. We little know how dependent our spiritual health is on the little, regular, habitual helps and how much we suffer if we miss this nourishment. This is key. It is as fatal an error to make this the only day of spiritual nourishment as it is to neglect it altogether. So the Lord prepares a table for his people, even in the wilderness, and one in which in fellowship with him, he says, I provide for your needs and I satisfy all your hunger. Let's pray.